somewhat unusual to come to an Old Testament passage of Scripture for a New Testament ordinance, but yet we do firmly believe in the unity of the Testaments. But this psalm is the psalm that Paul quotes from in Romans 15 and verse 3. We read together today, we didn't dwell uh, at length on any of the portion in chapter 15 that we read and considered, but you'll notice uh, from verse 9 in our reading is what Paul quoted here in Romans 15. But this psalm is most clearly messianic. It is not exceeded by any psalm in the number of times that it is quoted in the New Testament. I think that Psalm 22, which is also messianic, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, opening that psalm, is quoted an equal number of times. Uh, but barring that, this psalm quoted more in the New Testament than any other psalm. There are certainly elements of David, its author in it, but the greater David is underneath and in some places on the surface all the way through. So let us be mindful of that. It is somewhat of a lengthy psalm, but let us read it together before we consider something of it tonight here at the table. Psalm 69 to the chief musician upon Shoshanim, which may be an instrument inclining towards joy, some say, a psalm of David. Save me, O God, for the waters are come in unto my soul. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I'm coming to deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary of my crying. My throat is dried. Mine eyes fail while I wait for my God. They that hate me without cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty. Then I restored that which I took not away. O God, Thou knowest my foolishness, and my sins are not hid from Thee. Let not them that wait on Thee, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed for my sake. Let not those that seek Thee be confounded for my sake, O God of Israel. Because for Thy sake... I have borne reproach. Shame hath covered my face. I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up and the reproaches of them that reproached thee are fallen upon me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that was to my reproach. I made sackcloth also my garment, and I became a proverb to them. They that sit in the gate spake against me, and I was the song of the drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is unto Thee, O Lord, in an acceptable time. O God, in the multitude of Thy mercy, hear me in the truth of Thy salvation. Deliver me out of the mire, and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from them that hate me and out of the deep waters. Let not the water flood overflow me, neither let the deep swallow me up, and let not the pit shut her mouth upon me. Hear me, O Lord, for thy loving kindness is good. 
Turn unto me according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, and hide not thy face from thy servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. Draw nigh into my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of mine enemies. Thou hast known my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. Mine adversaries are all before thee. Reproach hath broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. And I looked for some to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Let their table become a snare before them, and that which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened that they see not, and make their loins continually to shake. Pour out thine indignation upon them, and let thy wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their habitation be desolate, and let none dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom thou hast smitten, and they talk to the grief of those whom thou hast wounded. Add iniquity unto their iniquity, and let them not come into thy righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living, and not be written with the righteous. But I am poor and sorrowful, let thy salvation, O God, set me up on high. I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify Him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bullock that hath horns and hooves. The humble shall see this and be glad, and your heart shall live that seek God. For the Lord heareth the poor and despiseth not His prisoners. Let the heaven and earth praise Him the seas and everything that moveth therein. For God will save Zion and will build the cities of Judah and they that dwell there and have it in possession. The seed also of His servants shall inherit it and they that love His name shall dwell therein. Amen. May God bless the reading of His Word. Let's bow our heads together as we Consider something of this messianic psalm. Lord, we come, we marvel at the depth of suffering, the depth of passion that our Savior endured. Truly the great depths that David labored under but faint foreshadowings of the suffering servant of the Lord. And we pray then tonight for grace. Let us see Christ in this psalm that is His. And as we come to this table, as we come on this side of the cross, on this side of an empty tomb, a season in which our risen and ascended Christ is seated in glory and we're seated together with Him. Lord, help us to see. Help us to remember. Lord, move upon us with gospel hearts as we come tonight to rightly remember our Savior. 
We pray it in His worthy name. Amen. We cannot take pains to examine every phrase and every portion of this psalm. But I hope with that, I guess, admonition at the beginning, you were thinking of Christ, applying these words and that half of the psalm full of passion to our Savior as we read. The first 21 verses, three sections really of the psalm will just reflect on this evening. The first 21 verses of this psalm truly speak of many facets of His passion. It's true of the whole of His life, but yet there are certainly windows, it seems, to those closing days and hours of His preparation. And then, of course, the cross itself, as we read there, of that point where they gave Him vinegar to drink just adding insult still to the injuries of that awful death. But to think of that opening exclamation, it's one thing from the words of the lesser David, but to have it reflected in the words of the Savior. Save me, O God, for the waters are come in unto my soul. Echoes of Jeremiah's thoughts when he was literally in a pit and in the mire, but yet the mire that our Savior felt and was cast into. The waters that nearly overwhelmed his soul. The sufferings, the passion. And again, we're taken back when we consider the physical sufferings, the literal aspects of crucifixion, but again that those were only the attending circumstances. The infinitely greater suffering was wrath, wrath against sin. As our Lord begins to reflect upon the pieces of His agony, what He received from the hands of sinners, New Testament phrases it such contradiction of sinners against himself. They, we read verse 4, hated him without cause. And you think of David's relative innocence as yes, a fallen son of Adam, but a worthy and innocent man in comparison to the jealousy and the falsehoods that Saul was charging him with and pursuing him to take his life. But here is Jesus, holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Never a wrong thought, much less a wrong word or a a wrong inflection against his neighbor. And yet, some suggest, one I read Bonner with a question mark at verse 12, Was it in Nazareth that Jesus was the song of the drunkards? And you consider that. One that was laughed at by the drunkards. 
They didn't know what they did. Verse 5 is one of those portions of a messianic psalm where we have our thoughts drawn to the type rather than the anti-type. Jesus could not say, O God, Thou knowest my foolishness and my sins are not hid from Thee. David could, even as the innocent one pursued by Saul, speak of foolishness and sins of his own that God knew. And yet, Jesus took our foolishness as His own. He took our sins as His own. God dealt with those sins as if they were Jesus' own. Hugh Martin, that I've quoted a lot recently with reference to Jonah and his wonderful sermonic commentary on the book, in one of his other books, which we've quoted often in this pulpit as well, his book on the atonement, he speaks about this prospect of imputed guilt. He said we can't look at it, we can't study it by way of our experience, we can't study it by way of comparison. But he said we can study it by way of contrast. We experience imputed righteousness. One of the most precious, one of the most inspiring aspects of our Christian experience is to understand that we're accepted in the Beloved. That Jesus' righteousness is counted as ours. That when God looks at us, He doesn't see us in our sin. He sees Jesus in His holiness. And this is where I'm so jealous from a very practical standpoint, not just theological standpoint. Very practically jealous for part of the truths of our covenant theology. Because it is in this system of doctrine, I think the Bible's system of doctrine, those two men, that we see this pinnacle of gospel work. That what Jesus worked out in our nature, fulfilling the moral law of God as was required of us in our nature, that God didn't change or lower His standard in order to let us in. He magnified His law and made it honorable and honored His law in Christ and imputed that perfect righteousness to us. And I've experienced, I've seen it experienced in many lives. It's like the lights coming on. Joy filling the soul where doubt often was there. And I say Hugh Martin speaks about the fact that it's by way of this contrast. If that joy of understanding of relishing the imputed righteousness of Christ 
can fill us with the highest joys we'll know this side and probably the other side of glory. Let us contrast that with its parallel doctrine of imputed guilt. All the guilt that belonged to us. When you think of the descriptions of that in Scripture, the Old Testament, psalmists spoke about, Lord, cleanse me from secret sins. You think about the guilt we're aware of, the shame that comes with our sins against our God. And then again with the right view of the law of God, realizing that we don't even get it. We can't comprehend the depth of our sin and our guilt before God. And that Jesus took that guilt upon Himself. Just as we experience joy, release, acceptance with that truth of the imputation of His righteousness to us, Jesus here is feeling the weight not just of those that contradiction of sinners against himself, which is evident through the psalm. But of the weight of our guilt that he fully understood. And God's wrath against our sins. I think often, I have since my youth of the phrase in Watts' hymn, Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut its glories in when Christ the mighty Maker died for man the creature's sin. There were thunderings, darkness, earthquakes as Jesus hung upon the cross. I wonder what tremblings were going on in galaxies on the other side of this universe when Christ, the mighty Maker, died for man, the creature's sins. To quote the other Messianic Psalm, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You ponder that. We can never plumb the depths of it, but I think a little hint, as we've said, in those seven last words, he opens and speaks of my Father. Very close at the point of his giving up the ghost. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. But in the midst and in the depths of his suffering, my God. He 
sees the relationship as one of a judge. One who is venting wrath against not his sin. Ours. Other phrases of this portion of the psalm. I think in verse 8, I'm become a stranger to my brethren, an alien unto my mother's children. Think of Israel. He came into his own. His own received him not. And you ponder, what will it be? I believe it will be. Isaiah 53 is that servant's song, yet a prophetic glimpse at Israel's penitential confession. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But now we see he was wounded for our transgressions. You read verse 20 and 21. Think of this. We had those few thoughts this morning in Sunday school about sorrow, depression. Reproach hath broken my heart. I am full of heaviness. A suffering Savior indeed. But quickly, let us come. The second section really begins in verse 22. And this is a sobering section down through the end of verse 28. Here we see a savor of death unto death, as Bonner phrased it. There are really imprecations in these prayers. Those that refuse Him, He prays against. Verse 22, let their table become a snare before them. That which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened that they see not. Make their loins continually to shake. Pour out thine indignation upon them. Let thy wrathful anger take hold of them. Hear the prayer of the suffering servant against these who will not receive him. They take confidence in themselves. I've never seen this or heard it suggested. But some suggest here, based on a similar usage in the book of Malachi in the first chapter, let their table become a snare before them, that it's not a table as that which we used for food, for feasting, a meal, but it is the altar. And you think of the unbelieving Israel who see their Messiah and reject Him. Who will not hear a Gospel word. But the prayer here is that their table, their altar, become a snare. Bonner phrased it this way, let the letter kill them since they refuse the Spirit. 
Think of the folly of rejecting Jesus. You know, the message of Hebrews for New Testament Jews that have been informed, that have heard the message of Jesus of Nazareth, who understand the Gospel and still walk away from it. They don't want an imputed righteousness. They want to put confidence in their own righteousness. And so it's phrased, they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh. The Savior here prays imprecatory prayer against them. But from verse 29 to the end of the psalm, we have here the Savior of life. The message of the Gospel is a savor of death unto death for those who will not hear it, who will not receive it, but for those who will hear it, who will receive it. It's a savor of life unto life. But I am poor and sorrowful. Let Thy salvation, O God, set me up on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. will magnify Him with thanksgiving. You follow through words here of exaltation. Words here, look at verse 31, This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or a bullock that hath horns and hooves. The humble shall see this and be glad, and your heart shall live that seek God. Here is acceptance rather than rejection. We looked at that Significant part of Romans this morning. Opening and closing with receive your brother. And that's where Paul quotes this psalm. You're going to be frustrated with another believer because he doesn't get something you get on a matter of indifference. And you're going to judge your brother because you think he doesn't get something that you do get, you're going to entertain judging and despising when Jesus spoke of the reproaches that men heaped upon God. He took upon Himself. You're going to fail to receive your fellow believer when he has endured all this in order to receive you. Gospel thinking puts things in a little different perspective. Well, as we come tonight to this table, let us remember let us meditate. We can't plumb the depths. But let us meditate on the depths of what Jesus has suffered for us. That we might be welcomed to His table. This is a picture of an eternal marriage supper. Come.
I trust the Lord will bless our meditations tonight upon this portion of His Word.